turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be in verses 12 to 27. If you're going to read along in the, the pew Bibles in front of you or the seat backs in front of you, you'll, be, you'll find the passage on page 959, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 27. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man? that you'd be mindful of him, the son of man, that you would care for him, that you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the, of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so, Father, we pray now that you would make Jesus glorious to us, the one who you made for a little while a little lower than the angels, to take on flesh, to dwell among us, to live a life perfectly pleasing to you, to go to a cross in the place of sinners to satisfy your wrath, to be raised in righteousness, to ascend and seat at your right hand, waiting to come and take all his people home. And so we pray that that good news would soak into our hearts this morning. For any who are far from you would be brought near and reconciled to you. And those who are near to you would be thankful and grateful and strengthened to love you all the more, and to love one another. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I've preached over the last year or so, I've preached about the essence of the Christian life as a sermon series. We've covered specific passages of Scripture that help us grasp a few essential elements of following Jesus. The goal is not to be reductionistic, but to be focused, as Scripture is often focused just distilling down what it means to live according to the gospel in a particular area of life. And so this morning, I want us to consider together the essence of our unity as Christians, especially as a church. What actually unites us? Is it geography? Is it this building? Is it style? Is it a denomination? Is it a political position or is it economic status? Is it gender? Is it ethnic or cultural background? Is it age? Is it marital status? Is it our statement of faith? Is it our church covenant? Is it our leadership? Are we united because we share the same pastors and staff? And one thing you may be wondering is why we would preach such a topic on Christmas Day. But I'd like to argue that unity 
and the unity of the church is one of the reasons that the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. It's one of the reasons he came. He came to restore fellowship with God. He came to reintegrate what had been disintegrated by sin, to reunify what had become disunified. Because sin alienates us from God and one another. Isaiah 59, your sin has made a separation between you and your God. In Genesis 3, Adam rebelled against the word of God. Sin entered the world. The Lord cursed the whole creation because of our sin. And the rest of the Bible tells the story of the fallout. And one of the most significant parts of that fallout was disunity. Disharmony in the whole creation. Disunity between God and people. You remember Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden, banished from the presence of God. Disunity among people. Genesis 4, the very first man born under the curse is going to murder his brother. And all the chapters to follow tell that story. Disunity with the cosmos, just the fact that we toil and labor with the creation. If you ever wonder, just go swim with great white sharks. Go stand in the path of a tornado. Go play with a cobra. And you'll realize you're not unified with the rest of creation. Disunity within yourself. Disunity within your body. Just the fact that we would get sick. That we've had allergies and autoimmune disorders and just our own bodies at war within itself. Slowly disintegrating. Eventually dying. Well, Christ came to reconcile us to God, to reconcile us to one another, to eventually reconcile us with everything in the whole creation, to create a whole new heavens and a new earth where there's perfect harmony, perfect unity. We sang about it this morning. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus is going to pray to his father. And here's some of what he's going to pray. He says, I don't ask for these only, meaning not just for the disciples sitting around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and listen to this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That the unity of his people with God and with one another is an actual sign, a mark, that God really did send Jesus into the world. That the Son really did take on flesh. In other words, our unity is... Part of the proof that Christmas is real, that what happened that we celebrate at Christmas is real, that the Father sent the Son into the world. And so this morning we're going to ask, what is the essence of this unity? 
And once we answer that question, we'll ask how that unity should affect how we then live together, how we relate to one another. So what's the essence of our unity? That's point one. Then what are the implications of that unity? That's point two. And then we'll spend a little bit of time with application of that unity, point three. So essence, implication, application. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. That was just a bonus verse. We're just going to stop at 27. So the Corinthian church needed to hear these words because they were quarreling and defining over many things. They're dividing over their preferred leaders in chapters 1 and 3. They're dividing over legal issues and dragging each other to court in chapter 6. They're dividing over singleness and marriage in chapter 7. They're dividing over sexual purity and sexual immorality in chapter 7. They're dividing over food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8. They're dividing over gender roles in the first half of chapter 11. They're dividing over the Lord's Supper in the second half of chapter 11. Just to think about that that the unifying celebration of the Lord's Supper was a source of division to their church. They weren't eating it together. Some were getting drunk on the Lord's Supper wine. Others were eating up all the bread before everyone could get there. And in the immediate context of chapter 12, they're dividing over spiritual gifts. They're using the gifts of the Spirit to either exalt themselves over others or to be self-deprecating in relation to others. That certain church members saw their particular gifts as more important and more valuable to the church, especially in Corinth speaking in tongues. 
that if you could speak in tongues, that was like top status. Okay, maybe if you could teach articulately, okay, that was maybe next down. And then administration, service, compassion, that was way down here. And so others are going to see their particular gifts as less valuable, perhaps worthless to the church. So that's what's going to prompt the Apostle Paul to say up there in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, the same Lord. Verse 6, the same God. Verse 8, same Spirit. Verse 9, same Spirit. And all those giftings you see there listed in verses 8 through 10 are simply a sampling of the many innumerable giftings that the Lord may bless his church with. Which according to verse 11, the same Spirit apportions to each individually as he wills. Same Spirit apportions to each as he wills. A whole multitude of gifts. And that's what leads Paul to his conclusion statement in verse 12 which is our first point, the essence of our unity. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So what is the essence of our unity? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. Just as our physical bodies exist as a unified whole, but with many parts, so verse 12, so it is with Christ. His body, the church, consists of many parts, and that's each of us. And yet we're one body, which is miraculous. Because how does that work? Well, because one and the same spirit joined each of us to Christ and therefore to each other. Notice, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So the one and only spirit of God does all that work in joining us together, one body, the body of Christ. Listen for a minute to David's reflection on God creating his physical body in Psalm 139. This is Psalm 139, verse 13. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And so if you think about it, in the days after you were conceived in your mother's womb, the process of cell multiplication, cell separation, and even cell union began. Germinal stage, embryotic stage, fetal stage all the way up to your birth. Skin started to form, nervous system, digestive system, neural pathways, internal organs, muscle tissue, skeletal bones, all that starts to get put together. And what David is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that God is the one who actually knit you together. God is the one who created and oversaw that entire process of how hidden from anyone else's sight at a cellular level, he put you together. He knit you together. That the reason blood travels all over your body, passes through your heart, takes oxygen to other parts of your body, is because God knit you together in your mother's womb. Many parts, but yet a unified 
whole. And so God is the reason your fingers are attached to your hand, your hand to your arm, your arm to the rest of your body, your foot to your leg. God is the reason kneecaps stay attached to you. God is the reason all your internal organs stay put together and function together. And according to 1 Corinthians 12, that's actually what the Lord does with the church, with the body of Christ. In the same way that he knit you together in your mother's womb, so he composes the whole body of Christ. He knits us together. When the Holy Spirit unites you to Jesus Christ by faith, you're born again. His death and resurrection count for your death and resurrection. You become alive in Christ. The Spirit then unites you automatically to every member of the body of Christ. All across the world, all across human history, you're put in. You're put into Christ and thereby united to every Christian that's ever lived. Listen to Ephesians 4. We read it this, Courtney read it this morning. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called, and the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And he goes on in Ephesians 4 to say that Christ is our head, the head of the body. And all of us are joined to him by the Spirit. And what that means is none of us create good and lasting unity. God does. None of us can create good and lasting unity. Only God can. And that means that every effort the world makes to create unity will always fail, eventually. Always. Because no political ideology, no moral system, no strategy, no technique, no sentimental message, no powerful leader can change human hearts, let alone reconcile people to God, let alone reconcile them to one another and join them together forever. Only God can do that. Notice what he says there in verse 13. Baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And in Galatians 3.28, Paul's going to say something very similar. He's going to say, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Can you think about a set of issues that have been more divisive across human history and every culture than those three issues? Did you notice that? Ethnic cultural background, Jew or Greek. Sociopolitical economic status, slave or free. Gender, male or female, real entities, but in Christ joined together as one. Three of the most divisive issues in the history of the world in Christ are brought together and united. From every tribe and tongue, from every walk of life, from every style and preference, all children of God, all adopted into his family, all forgiven and made new, all destined for the same inheritance, all who've been made to drink of one spirit, baptized into one body. That's incredible. Notice verse 13, all were made to drink. In other words, we didn't volunteer. We didn't come up with it on our own. Ephesians 2, 5, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. 
See, the playing field is level after your salvation because it was level before your salvation. We were all dead. That when God looked down from heaven and sees all male, female, slave-free, Jew-Greek, every socioeconomic group, every socioethnic group, every age, every location, he just sees two categories, dead or alive. And apart from Christ, it's just dead. And dead people don't drink. No, he had to make us alive. He had to make us drink of this one spirit, and then we become alive. And so now, this side of salvation, all those same demographic variables and external factors don't make the difference in our unity either. Because he just sees alive. Alive in Christ. So if you sit here today, alive to Christ, dead to sin, united to Jesus, then you, like every other Christian in the world, are a product of God's grace. That's how you got in. What is a Christian? Someone who is in Christ. How do you get into Christ? By the Spirit of God. Why does the Spirit of God do that? The grace of God chooses you, makes you to drink, and joins you together. And so he creates our unity. And yet, at the same time, we respond by making that unity visible. So we don't create unity, but we do make it visible. That is, when you come to a local church like this one, unite yourself to a church through membership, then you become a local expression of the body of Christ. That's what University Baptist Church is, a local expression of the body of Christ, where the invisible unity of Christ is made visible. That each local church is itself a body of Christ, with Christ as her head. And so if we're in Christ, then the Spirit unites us to one another, whether we're a member of this church or not. But then we volunteer out of obedience to Christ to join ourselves to a local body in order to make visible that invisible unity, in order to make visible the body of Christ, in order to commit to representing him and to reflecting him in the world and helping one another follow him in this world. So God creates our unity. God puts us in. And now once in, out of obedience to Christ, we volunteer to join together to make that invisible unity visible. It also helps to maintain our unity, which then brings us to our second point, the implications of this unity. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And so Paul moves from appreciating the oneness of our unity to the manyness of our unity. That being baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ doesn't erase your personhood. You're joined, not absorbed. You're joined as a distinctive member of the body. So the body of Christ consists of many members, verse 14. So the church across millennia, tens of millions. The church across the world, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. The church in Corinth at the time, maybe 60 or 70 members. UBC, 635 members. All part of this local body with Christ as her head. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. So that's the first implication of this unity has to do with our sense of personal security and identity. Because all of us are always in danger of comparing ourselves to everyone else in the church, especially in the church. And in doing so, we may walk away thinking, okay, I don't fit. I don't belong. I don't contribute anything. My presence there doesn't really matter. What I have to bring to the table doesn't really matter. And what Scripture here says is that's nonsense. You fit. You belong. God makes sure you do. Now, you may be trying to fit in the wrong way based on external qualities, based on how you stack up next to everyone else. But in the way you're supposed to fit, you fit. Why? Because God put you in. So younger or older, taller or shorter, every skin tone, every nationality, richer or poor, single or married, lots of children, few children, no children, more educated, less educated, none of those demographic descriptive variables have any bearing on how knit together you are in the body. They add dimension, they add color, they add diversity, but they don't determine how fit you are or how knit together you are. And so it shouldn't determine how knit together you feel or how knit together you act. So whether you have speaking gifts or serving gifts, administrative gifts or leadership gifts, mercy gifts or discernment gifts, gifts of wisdom, organization, prayer, languages, logistics, evangelism, preaching, facility management, security, hospitality, musical instruments, singing, compassion for children, compassion for parents, financial giving, financial budgeting, clerking, treasuring, timing, decorating, counseling, encouraging, exhorting, reproving, hundred other gifts we could list. God gifted you in a specific manner for a specific reason for the good of this church, for the building up of this church. And I personally don't think we're always meant to see our gifts. I think other people usually see our gifts. If you're sitting around all day looking in the mirror wondering what your gifts are, you're on the wrong track. He's probably not going to show you because that's not the direction he wants you looking. No, he just says, you're in, you fit, you're part of the body, jump in and serve in all the different ways that excite you, in all the different ways that interest you, in all the different ways that you seem gifted in, in all the different ways that people around you say, hey, you're gifted in that. We need more of that. Every single of the 635 members, a essential part of the body. God has designed it so to build itself up in love. Because of how the Lord gifts and composes the body, you will always be surrounded by people who are different than you. Always. And you'll always be surrounded by people who are probably better at things than you. That has to be the case. Has to be the case. Some members will be stronger teachers, some stronger money givers, some are stronger mercy givers, some are stronger administrators, stronger organizers, stronger leaders, stronger wisdom sharers. And the Lord's going to gift you in ways that he doesn't gift others. What we simply cannot say is verse 15, I do not belong to the body. What we can't say is verse 16, I don't belong to the body. 
Or verse 16, I am less a part of the body. Because verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there were many parts, yet one body. It is tempting from time to time to think that if you were in a church just by yourself, that would be a lot better. Sometimes I jokingly call it No People Bible Church. It's just you. And yet clearly from this passage, that's a ridiculous idea. What value is just a single index finger limping around on the ground? What value is a toe by itself on the floor? That's the sign of injury, not the sign of health. Or imagine, okay, my right leg is smaller than, or is, is stronger than my right, left leg. I just want two right legs. If I walked around saying, I wish I had two right legs instead of a right and a left, you would quickly correct me. Say, actually, if you had two right legs, you'd have trouble walking. You'd fall over. There's a beautiful balance to which God has given. Would any of you trade in your two eyes for two more kneecaps? Do any of you wish that you had five noses and no ears? Well, every part of the body benefits the whole body, and often in distinctive ways, how much more the body of Christ. Because our physical bodies, yeah, they are dying. Our physical bodies do get sick. They do decay. So how much more the body of Christ that has knit together, put together, can build itself up in love? And so we have to learn to look beyond externals. To look by faith to appreciate God's version of what unity is. God's version of how he put us all together. So if you're looking at another member thinking, I don't quite see how they fit, well, that's a prayer request, not a a truth you're stating. Ask God to help you see, or if you don't see how you fit, more important, well, that's a prayer request. Lord, help me see where to fit, where to serve, where to give, where to help. Verse 18, God arranged it. He, verse 18, chose to put us together as a church. And it shouldn't surprise us that he chose to put us together in a way that we wouldn't put us together. He did it in a way that we wouldn't typically choose. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So there are parts that you look at and go, okay, that's that's a weak link in the chain. Well, if you don't have that weak link in the chain, you don't have a chain. It's indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we may think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. Just think about what are the members of a particular church that the world's going to look at and see with less honor? Well, in Corinth, maybe it was a slave. Maybe it was a woman. Maybe it was an elderly person. Maybe it was a child. In every culture, certain demographic groups are devalued. And so what the Lord says is in the church, we give them greater honor. In the church, we esteem them more highly. In the church, we take whatever the world is demeaning, and we say, actually, to God, that's precious. And so we're going to give honor here to what the world dishonors. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
In the same way that we cover certain parts of our body whenever we go in public, there's just sometimes that some of us as members of the church, I think, aren't always fit for public consumption. I don't know about you, there are days where I'm personally not real fit for public consumption, where, where my sins have to be covered, where my weaknesses have to be covered, where I have to be born with patiently. So this could mean many things, but one thing it means is, yeah, we cover sins, not cover up, but we forgive, we bear patiently with, we see weaknesses and we don't exploit them, we help. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. There's the point. No division in the body. Something dishonored in the world, we give it honor. Something put down, we esteem it. Something unpresentable, we cover it with modesty. So that there's no division. We appreciate, we have gratitude, we serve, we appreciate how others serve. So there'd be no division, but unity. And that the members may have the same care for one another. So there's no varsity or JV. There's no, okay, here's the superstars, here's the bench players, and everybody gets a different amount of care, a different amount of value. And he says, no, every member giving the same care for each other. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We've all felt this, right? You stub your pinky toe, it's like your earlobe will feel it. I remember having wisdom teeth out and a bone chipped off that I didn't know about, and so my whole face got infected, grew out to about right here, and I could feel it in my toenails. Like, I kid you not. Like, the pain, like, ner- it's all connected. So in the same way, when we have a member who suffers, a family this church that suffers, a person who suffers, well, the body feels it. There's compassion there. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Not envy, not jealousy, not spite, but if one is honored, we rejoice. We praise God. Now you are all the body of Christ, or you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So the first implication related to our personal security and identity as members of the body of Christ. The second relates to personal humility and how we view other members of the body of Christ. The truth that we are united in Christ by the gracious working of God through his spirit should make us humble, not arrogant. There should be no hint of superiority in relation to anyone else. No hint even of inferiority in relation to anyone else. That that grace of God in Christ that put us into Christ, which is the basis for our unity, should produce gratitude, not grumbling. When we see all the different ways all the members are gifted and serve this church, we should praise God. We should be grateful. We should be thankful for each other. In the same way that you're hopefully thankful for all your toes. Thankful for all your fingers. And you may think, oh, I could lose a big toe, no big deal. Well, lose a big toe, then try standing up. You realize, oh, it's important for balance. Or the inner ear. Take out all your inner ear. You're going to fall over. The things that you didn't even realize that God put in your body that serves a purpose. So in the same way in the church. 
So next time you look through the membership directory and begin praying for members on each page, praise the Lord that he supernaturally grafted each and every member into the body and gifted them to serve the body in some way. It's another reason when there's homebound members in our church to every member at times to go visit. Not just so that you can serve, but so that they can serve you. That's part of how they feel a part of the body. And I don't know, any of you who have visited any of our homebound members, you'll always leave blessed. You'll always leave feeling, okay, wait a minute, I thought I was going to serve. Why do I feel so encouraged? Well, because that member of the church is gifted by the Spirit of God and is going to impart some gift to you by the grace of God. And you'll know it. When you leave. So do you notice weaker parts of the body? They're indispensable. Less honorable parts. Give them honor. Do you see weak faith? Well, then encourage their faith. Do you notice members who struggle in personal relationships? Well, then be gracious. Bear patiently, knowing that in all kinds of areas, God is patient toward you. And other members are patient toward you. God has composed the body. God has chosen each of his children. God has given each child gifts to be used in service to one another. And it's personal to him. So imagine if you, as a father or mother, had five or six or seven kids, and you sat them all down and gave all of them different gifts. And in the days after, they began to compare their gifts and look at the gifts and start assessing who you loved more based on the gifts you gave. And some started feeling really great and really superior, like, man, does God love me. And others start to think, man, father or mother doesn't love me much because I just got this. What we don't realize is we're actually making a statement about the character of the parents, not the kids. Is we're actually making a very strong statement about partiality in the parents. And do we realize that's what we're saying about God? when there's superiority and inferiority, when there's that kind of division in the church, we're actually making a statement about the character of God. That he loves some of his children more than others. That he gives good gifts to some and not to others. That he shows partiality. And so one of the ways that we uphold the good and holy character of God before the world is by the way that we value everyone in the body of Christ. And that brings us to our final point, the application of our unity. Point one, turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the first application of this passage. Because you may be here and listening to this message from the outside. If you're honest, you're not a Christian. Either you don't see the need to be reconciled to God or you're trying to reconcile to him apart from Jesus Christ. That's why I want to assure you this morning, there's nothing you need more in your existence than reconciliation to God. There's nothing you need more than peace with God. There's nothing you need more than for your sins to be forgiven because you're alienated from God. Your sins alienate you from God. And so your greatest need is reconciliation to God. That's what's at the root of all your broken relationships. It's what's at the root of all your miseries. It's at the root of all your troubles. And faith in Christ is the road to union with Christ. And union with Christ 
is what it means to be a Christian. But that's how you're saved. So the first thing this passage invites is to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Because when the Son of God took on flesh, what we celebrate on Christmas Day, and lived a righteous life, he then went to the cross and died in the place of sinners. And he had to go there because the wages of sin is death. That that's the due penalty for sin. That's the penalty that everyone who dies apart from Christ is going to pay for eternity. But God sent his son in the place of his own people to die for their sin. To take on God's wrath for sin in himself. And to bear it away. So that his blood actually pays the price of sin. But because Christ was righteous and holy, on the third day he rose. Death couldn't hold him. So that anybody whose faith is in him, his death counts for them. His righteousness is credited to them. So that on the day that you die, your body will go in the ground, your soul will depart to be with the Lord, and on the last day he will raise your body. And that temporary disunity of your soul and body will be reunified. And you will take on a new body forever to dwell in the presence of God. That's why salvation is about reconciliation. Jesus came as a man to bring us to God. And the proper response and application of this passage is trust in him. Turn from your sin to him. Second application is to be serious about baptism and church membership. Because you may be here and you're dating the church or you're dating some other church. Not committed, not wanting to be tied down, not wanting to be under authority of the church, not wanting to be responsible for other specific members of the body. Well, this is where John 17, Ephesians 4, Galatians 3, 1 Corinthians 12 teach us that how you make the invisible body of Christ visible is by joining a church. And baptism is this beautiful symbol of it, right? When you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're put down into the water as a picture of being united to Christ in his death. You're raised as a picture of being united to him in his resurrection. And so baptism is a picture of union with Christ. And when you're baptized, you're baptized into the church by the Spirit of God. It's the visible picture of 1 Corinthians 12. So this is why, as a church, we want to take baptism and church membership seriously. Because that's the thing that displays visibly what is true about us invisibly. Thirdly, prioritize unity with the Lord and with his church. Prioritize those things. Jesus came, lived, died, and rose to reconcile us to God and to each other. So we should prioritize unity with the Lord and with his church. Where we're meditating regularly on the word of God, speaking regularly to the Lord in prayer, feeding that union with Christ in every way that we can. Knowing that you'll never lose your union with Christ, but you can unsettle your communion with Christ. Grieve anything you might do to harm the unity of the church. Pursue anything and everything that helps preserve the unity of the church. So delight yourself in corporate gathering. Delight yourself in singing. Pursue pursue relationships with one another. Spend meaningful time together. Notice verse 25, that members may have the same care for one another. In other words, care for the members of this church in your sphere of influence. 
You can't care for all the other 634 all the time. But there are members who are in your sphere of influence. There are members who are in your orbit. Care for them. Reconcile broken relationships through repentance and forgiveness of sin. Are there relationships that are broken? Is that because of your sin? That you need to confess and own and seek forgiveness. Some, for some of us, that's the gift as parents we need to give our kids this afternoon. It's not a physical present. It's repenting of our sin against them and asking for their forgiveness. It's the gift some of you kids need to give to your parents this afternoon. Repenting of your sin and seeking their forgiveness. It's the gift we need to give some of our friends in this church. That we actually reconcile broken relationships. Serve, encourage, rejoice, be thankful, speak truth in love. Dozens of other ways we can prioritize unity with the church and with the Lord. Fourthly, value the Lord's Supper and what it means. It actually celebrates the union we enjoy with Christ. And as a result, the fellowship that we have with one another. When we partake of the, the bread and the cup, we're heralding the Lord's death, but we're celebrating our union with him. And we're doing it together in fellowship with one another. And so take it seriously. Think about Jesus giving his body in your place, shedding his blood for your sin Think about his perfect righteousness counting as your righteousness so that you can be forgiven and adopted and put into this body. And so when we take the Lord's Supper together, we're proclaiming those truths. It's one of the, the most beautiful pictures of our unity as a church. And fifthly, pursue humility. Avoid the ditch of self-focused insecurity and self-deprecation. Avoid the ditch of self-exalting arrogance and demeaning others. Those are the two ditches to this passage. Don't fall into the ditch of self-deprecation and inferiority. Don't fall into the ditch of self-exaltation and demeaning of others. Rather, learn to appreciate all the ways the Lord gifts the people of this church and don't try to conform them all to your image. And don't feel like you have to be conformed to everybody else's image. You're meant to be different. They're meant to be different. Learn to appreciate the mystery of how the Lord composes the church so that we won't be so quick to judgment of others, but to realize there's a mystery to what God has done in putting the church together. Well, in John 17, the Lord's going to go on to pray these words. He says to the Father, The glory that you've given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And so Christmas exists because the Son of God took on human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a perfectly righteous life as a man, and he came to die in our place for sin. 
and in order to bring us to God. Reconciled and at peace. And he rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will someday return to gather all of us to where he is. As he just prayed, so that they will be with me. And what does he say? Perfectly one. And if that's why Christ came, if that's why he lived, dies, rose, and is coming back, then may the Lord help us enjoy and express and guard that very unity until the day that he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending the Son into the world. We thank you for giving him as a sacrifice in our place. We thank you for giving the gift of the Holy Spirit through whom you made us alive by uniting us to Christ. We thank you for opening our eyes to who Christ is, opening our ears to the good news of salvation in his name. And we thank you for putting us in this church, for uniting us to this church, for gifting every member of this church so that we would serve one another, be grateful for one another, love one another, that this body would be built up so that all surrounding us would know that you, Father, sent Jesus into the world. And all the world would know that your word is true and that the gospel saves sinners. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.